My name is Reggie Garrett, and I'm a member of the Bushwick Book Club, part of Bushwick's partnership with Sal for the, some of these talks. I wrote a, well, thank you. Well, thanks, I guess I'm done for tonight. Thank you all. Uh, I read the book and wrote a song based on it. Uh, it was a really interesting book, and it's like a few things that I've read in my life where I enjoyed it all the way through, but when I got to the very end, it's like the very last word changed everything for me. Changed everything. Sort of the struggle between whether to stay, whether to go, the difficulty of the life. And when I read the last word, that shifted it all. And so I thought about people who go and come back, prodigals, and I wrote this sort of as a song from Cameroon, from the country, from the land itself, to some of its prodigals, those who came back. So think of it that way. Well, if everyone dances at the party, there's no one left to tell the tale. And if all my children are leaving, mm, I'll don the mourner's veil. Well, America is like a lovely road that calls to you. It's pretty, but crooked with deceit. And all those things that your heart desires, how they leave you What an old one can see sitting down Where the young cannot see standing on their feet And I fell down in my soul Through the whispers of the trees You would always Well, you tried to build your house upon the sand And it toppled even as you tried And all those folks who tried to tell you how to live your own life Were also full of lies Well, they say it's thought that breaks the heart. Yes, the truth can be very hard to abide. But you wanted that life so very badly. Oh, you let it bleed you dry. What an old one can see sitting down 
Thank you. Thanks a lot. That was Reggie Garrett, everybody. <laughs> We're honored to begin tonight with music written especially for tonight, inspired by Behold the Dreamers. This music was brought to us by the Bushwick Book Club Seattle, whose mission is to deliver literature, music, and songwriting to the Seattle community while building the next generation of musicians and readers. Let's give Reggie one more round of applause. So, good evening, everyone. I'm Ruth Dickey. I have the tremendous pleasure of serving as the Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to the very last event in our 31st season and an evening with Mbolo Umbue. 
so excited to be back here in Town Hall. So I just have to begin by saying, it's so fabulous to be here, right? After two years. It's great to be here in this gorgeous, fully accessible space with great new acoustics, and I understand fantastic bathrooms. So <laughs> may we all enjoy it. Thanks to everybody who helped make that possible. Speaking of making things possible, we're so grateful to the many partners who have made this evening possible. Thanks to our presenting sponsor, the Seattle Times. Thanks to our reception sponsors, Marjorie Restaurant and Woodenville Wine Country. Thanks to tonight's novella sponsor, Dow Built. Thanks to our organizational supporters, all of whom are listed in our program, and special, support for, special thanks for significant support of our public programs to Four Culture, the Amazon Literary Partnership, Arts Fund, the City of Seattle, Office of Arts and Culture, Nordstrom, and the Washington State Arts Commission. And finally, thanks to all of you for being here with us. Could we have a round of applause for all the sponsors? <laughs> As you might know, we've just announced our upcoming season, which will include luminaries like Malcolm Gladwell, Patti Smith, and ta Coates. Our Women You Need to Know series, which this is the finale of, will kick off in this very space with hometown hero, Lindy West, and then continue, I know, with Carmen Maria Machado, whose new memoir, In the Dream House, is highly anticipated, and it will conclude with the beloved writer, illustrator, and artist, Myra Kalman. Wink subscribers will receive a copy of Lindy's new book, The Witches Are Coming. It's going to be an incredible year, and it will be even better if you are with us. So please consider subscribing and joining us for your inspiration, conversation, and community. And if you subscribe to a full series tonight at our information table in the lobby, you'll get a free tote bag. Who could resist? <laughs> Subscriptions and single tickets for Sal Presents and Hinge events only are on sale now. And two very exciting journalism events will be announced Monday, so watch your email. I also want to give a shout out for Summer Book Bingo, which launched last month. I know. Yay, bingo. We're so proud to partner with the Seattle Public Library and with support from the Seattle Public Library Foundation to present our fifth summer of free festive reading fun for the whole community. We have exciting prizes, including tickets to sale events and gift certificates to independent bookstores. But of course, the best prize of all is a whole summer of reading fun. So pick up a card in the lobby and read along with us. We also have kids' boards and boards in Spanish on our website. The format for this evening will be remarks by Mbolo Mbwe, who will then be joined on stage by Minita Gandhi for a lively conversation. Minita is an actress, playwright, and dramaturg based in Los Angeles. She is the dramaturg for the world premiere of Behold the Dreamers at Book It Theater, which opens tomorrow night. I hope you're all going. After an initial conversation, Minita will include as many questions from all of you as possible. So if you have a question for Mbolo, please write it on the question card in your survey and pass it to an usher. Speaking of the program, we hope that you'll share your questions for Mbolo and also your feedback for us on our programming so we can continue to learn and improve. And you may have noticed that your question card is attached to the program. So if you would like to um, ask a question or share feedback, please rip it out now. So rip over me and not over Mbolo. Um, in addition to written questions, you can now use your phone to submit questions for Ambolo. Um, the town hall Wi-Fi information and Slido access information is in your event program, but I understand it was slightly wrong, and I apologize for that. You can go to www.slido.com, and that's S-L-I-D-O 
I think that's the part that was slightly wrong. The event code in your program should be correct, and it is hashtag A as an Apple 134 when you're prompted. And from there, you can enter your questions, and it's interactive, so you can vote questions that you like to the top. So we'll know which ones you like best. This is a new thing we're trying, so we'd love if you'd tell us how it works and if you like it. To officially begin our evening, it's now my pleasure to introduce a student from our Writers in the Schools program. This year, Writers in the Schools is part collaborating with 27 area schools in Seattle Children's Hospital, to matching each site with local professional creative writers to inspire and teach over 6,000 students how to write their own poems, stories, comics, and memoirs. Tonight's reader, Omar Shadeen, wrote his poem, Family at Seattle Children's Hospital with the support of Wits Writer and Teplik. Please join me in welcoming Omar. Hi, guys. My name is Omar Shamdin, and the title of this poem is Family. I remember when I visited my country, Kurdistan, in North of Iraq. I was 11. Me and my brother and my parents had to sleep at both of my grandparents' houses. I remember we decided to stay, which ended up being four years. I remember the doctor said we had to go back to the United States so I could have a bone marrow transplant. I remember when we got back to Seattle. Me and my brother and my parents were so excited because we got to see our cousins and our aunts. I remember first we had appointments at Seattle Cancer Care. They told my mom and my aunt about the transplant and things that were going to happen to me. I remember I had headphones on the whole time and I didn't listen. But when I found out what's gonna, what was really gonna happen to me, that I was going to stay in the hospital for a few months, they put a line in my chest and they, they said it would be fine. But the surgery failed and they had to open my chest. I have a scar. I was questioning my mom and my aunt and my dad, asking if the scar would go away because I didn't want the scar on my chest. I remember they had to give me steroids, which ended up changing my mood. The steroid made me feel angry and sad. I remember I was so hyped that one day I washed the dishes, which I never do, in the <laughs> hospital. It was like the steroids controlled me. That's it. Thank you so much, Omar. And now, the moment we've been eagerly awaiting. Mbolo Umbue's beautiful debut novel, Behold the Dreamers, is a gripping narrative of hope and dreams and home. In it, she traces the stories of two New York families whose lives are intertwined as they all navigate the economic collapse of, of 2008. Behold the Dreamers won the Penn Faulkner Award, was an Oprah Book Club selection and was named a notable book of the year by the Washington Post and the New York Times. It's simultaneously an intimate portrait of a family and an exploration of the most important issues of our time, of race and immigration and class and the cruelties and absurdities of our economy. The book asks the questions we all inherently struggle with. What is happiness? What makes a good life? What will we be willing to do or to give up for ourselves, for family, for love, and for dreams? 
Mbolo's compelling characters defy easy answers. At its core, this book is a love song for dreams and for dreamers. I am equally grateful to have read this lovely, important book and that it is a debut, which means we have many more books to look forward to from its gifted creator. Please join me in welcoming the brilliant storyteller, Mbolo Umbwe. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I love when I get to go after a musician and a poet. Now I feel the pressure to sing or to say a poem. But I'm not good at either, but I am I'm so delighted to be here. This is my first time speaking in Seattle. Um, and when I got this invitation, I was very excited. Um, I always wanted to live in Seattle. When I first came to America, I spent a lot of time watching Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> And I thought I was going to meet a guy who looks like Tom Hanks and get married and move here. It didn't work out. My husband doesn't look like Tom Hanks, but, he's, uh, but I, I'm just very happy to be here. Um, so before I came to America and I um, had fantasies of marrying Tom Hanks, I, I, um, I grew up in a town in Cameroon called Limbe, which I'll tell you more about later. Um, but just a few months before I came to America, I... Um, something happened, and I'd like to tell you a story of what happened to me. Um, specifically, this happened to me on the day I graduated from high school. Um, my high school was a private all-girls boarding school. It was one of the best um, high schools in my country. Many of the girls who came from there, they came from very wealthy families, unlike me. Um, my mother wasn't wealthy. Um, she was far from wealthy. I only went to this high school because I had relatives who um, helped sponsor me to go to this school. Um, but it never bothered me that we weren't rich. I worked hard in school and I had outstanding grades. Um, so at our graduation ceremony, which is the case in a lot of graduation ceremonies, awards are given to students with the best performances. Um, there was one particular award that was very special. It was a trophy given to a student who had excelled in a certain combination of subjects. And I was one of the few students in my class who was eligible for that um, particular trophy. So I knew I was in contention for that award. So before graduation day, a couple of my classmates said to me, oh, Imbolo, we think you're going to win this award because you know, there's only a handful of girls who are eligible and you have one of the best grades in class, so we think you're going to win this award. Um, and I... Um, I, and I'm not a competitive person by nature, and I didn't let talk of the award get to me. I just, before I continue, I just want to acknowledge Reggie, because I, um, Reggie and Omar, because I was listening to them in the back. Um, thank you for that music, um, Reggie, and thank you, Omar, for that poem. I just wanted to say that. Um, so, back to my award, which um, I, um, so everybody was saying, oh, Imbola, we think you're going to win this award because you're very smart and you're eligible for it. So graduation, they came, and when the winner for the award was announced, it wasn't me. The trophy went to another student who also met the criteria, a very intelligent young lady, a classmate who I always admired. So I clapped and I smiled, and she went to the podium, and she collected her award. And after the ceremony, I, I won other awards, so I took the awards I won, and I went and I celebrated with my family. 
So later that day, after the festivities were over and my classmates and I were back in our dormitories, um, other classmates started coming to me and they said, Imbolo, you were cheated. That award was yours to win, everybody knows it. The only reason the other student won it is because her family is wealthy and yours isn't. That's just the way the world works. So I listened to them and I made no comment. And in the silence, I realized something. I realized that I needed to decide what story to believe. Did I not win an award because my mother was not wealthy or because the trophy wasn't mine to win? The choice on what to believe was entirely mine. What others believed was completely immaterial. I could believe whatever I chose to believe. And what I chose to believe that day was that my classmate and I were both worthy of that trophy and she won it. End of story. My classmate had excellent grades and she was an exemplary student just like me. If the only thing that separated us was how much money our families had, so be it. I refused to let the experience change how highly I regarded that classmate. So recently, I was in my hometown last year, and that classmate of mine invited me over for dinner to her house. It was my first time seeing her since high school, and she'd grown into a lovely and most generous woman, as pretty as back when we were teenagers, which is not an easy thing to pull off. I thought about that graduation episode, and I realized what a loss it would have been for me if I'd chosen to believe the story the other girls were telling me. Not only would I have gone around with hurt feelings, I would have grown up to believe that certain things would not happen to me in life because I wasn't born into money. And I haven't found that to be the truth. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about that episode in my life and the power stories have over us. My classmates told me a believable story, and I refused to believe it. Why? Why do we believe certain stories and not believe others? Do our beliefs and interpretations have anything to do with the story? Of course not. Our beliefs and interpretation of a story have nothing to do with the story and everything to do with us. It has to do with who we think we are, what identities we choose to hold on to. We can't claim we believe certain stories because we heard it from a reliable source. Even the best of parents have told their children's stories that ended up not to be true. Even the most reputable media outlets have given us false stories. We can't say we believe it because it seems so factual. It doesn't take much for fact to be exposed as fiction and vice versa these days. I recently watched a documentary that claimed a diseased pop star was a pedophile. I believed every single word the victim said. Why? Because I identify with voiceless children. But what would I have believed if I had been a victim of false public accusations? On my high school graduation day, I identified as a person with potential. And when my classmates told me a story that suggested my potential meant nothing by itself, I refused to believe it. Identity is a beautiful thing and a dangerous thing. Beautiful because identity gives us a sense of belonging, which is, as human beings, we need. But identity is also a very dangerous thing because one identity is all it takes to shape a person's life for better or for worse. One identity is all it takes to alter our interpretation of a story. 
One identity is all it takes for a colorful world to become black and white. And let's not deceive ourselves that it's safe to identify as X but not as Y. An identity is an identity and potentially costly. You only need to turn on the news to see what devastations they've brought to the world. The strange thing about an identity, though, is that we don't always make a conscious decision on what to take on. Often, we inherit our identities from our families, or we pick it somewhere in our communities. Other times, the world takes it upon itself to tell us who we are. The world tells us a story, and we accept it. The story I was told about myself when I came to America was that I am an immigrant, which is actually true. I came from another country into this one. But the thing is that that story never felt real to me. I never walked around with a strong immigrant identity until the day I wrote a story that was in part about the struggles of an immigrant family, and I had to answer many interview questions that began with, so, Imbolo, as an immigrant, what do you think of Donald Trump? And then I then started giving responses like, well, as an immigrant, I have no comments. <laughs> Actually, I never said that. <laughs> I have a lot of comments. <laughs> um, but despite all the interviews I did, I never mentioned to any interviewer that while I might be an immigrant, I identify more as an emigrant, which is somebody who leaves his or her home, own homeland. One of my favorite novels of last year was called Small Country by a French writer named Guy Fay, which was originally published in France as Petit Pays. In it, the narrator is looking back on his boyhood before Burundi fell into a genocide, forcing him and his family to flee to France. Watching the news one day, he remarks as he sees migrants in makeshift boats washing up on European soil. Public opinion holds that they fled hell to find El Dorado. Bush, what about the country inside them? No one ever mentions that. So I'd like to tell you about the country inside me and what happened after I left it. I was born in the southwest region of Cameroon, which is one of two English-speaking regions in a mostly French-speaking country. If you've read about Cameroon in the news lately, it probably has to do with the violence that has engulfed the English-speaking regions ever since um, a separatist movement sprung up to create a new country for the English speakers because the English speakers feel very marginalized. And the predominantly French-speaking government sent its soldiers. Um, and for the past couple of years, villages have been burned, places in which I spent my childhood have been deserted. Thousands are now refugees. There's no saying when peace will return. But in my childhood, Cameroon was an emblem of peace in Africa. I spent most of my life in the town called Limbe, which is my hometown. I loved Limbe a lot, and still do. On school days, I walked with my friends for about an hour to attend a public secondary school. After high school, my relatives sponsored me to come to America to go to college, and I arrived here about 20 years ago in 1998. Within hours of my arrival, the relative I was traveling with suggested we go to a famous American restaurant and have something called a burger. <laughs> I'd heard of this thing called a burger, but I'd never tasted one, so I was excited to drive to the, to the restaurant, and then we got to McDonald's, <laughs> and I learned that there isn't just one kind of burger. There are about 20 different kinds of burgers. 
I'm looking at the menu and I had to decide between a Big Mac and a double cheeseburger and a quarter pounder and a double quarter pounder with cheese. And not being accustomed to too many choices because in my hometown we had one of everything. You want to drink milk, the whole town drinks one brand of milk. Um, not being used to having to make such decisions, I said, you know what, I'm not going to have a burger anymore. So I looked at the menu and I saw something called chicken nuggets. <laughs> and I got a bit confused because I didn't know chickens have a thing called nuggets. I, said, I told myself, you know, I don't, you know what, forget about I don't care. I'm going to try this chicken nuggets thing, whatever part it is. So I did, and I loved it. <laughs> and for many years, McDonald's chicken nuggets had a very special place in my heart <laughs> because it was my welcome to America moment. <laughs> so after having my chicken nuggets, I took a plane that evening to continue to Chicago, where I was to live with relatives until I started college. It was during my stay in Chicago that my homesickness began, a deep, unremitting longing to go back home. I wanted nothing more than to go back to my hometown of Limbe, see my mother, be with my friends, walk around the open-air market in my hometown, stroll up and down the streets filled with familiar faces. I like to say it was the Chicago weather, that leaving a warm seaside town for a cold city would make anybody want to flee. But it was more than the weather. It was many other things, including the reality of America, so unlike the America of my imagination. The America I encountered in those first days was nothing like what I'd seen on television in Cameroon. The people I met did not live like the characters on the Cosby show. They did not drive cars like the guys on Beverly Hills 90210. They didn't have the kind of wealth I'd seen on soap operas like Dallas and Dynasty. I'd imagined before arriving here that somehow I would seamlessly slide into a new life. America would be like Cameroon to me, my home, but I'll have a lot more money, of course, because isn't that the promise of America? Instead, I had to deal with the fact that many immigrants I met seemed defeated, tired, cynical. The broader country did not appear to be much better. My friends and I laugh when we talk about it. Why didn't we hear about this other America before coming here, we ask ourselves. We blame the media. We say they sold us a sanitized version of America. Whatever happened to honesty? In blaming the media, though, we forget that Cameroonian TV viewers, just like TV viewers the world over, are humans. And as humans, we prefer beautiful stories that come with endings with bows nicely tied at the top. The American media gave us what we sought. And why shouldn't they? Did we really want to hear about Americans left bankrupt by medical bills or innocent men stuck in solitary confinement? Do we want to watch TV, about, TV shows about children going to sleep hungry in the world just country on earth? Did we want to listen to testimonies of industrious men and women who walked from sunrise to sunset yet remain in debt? No, Cameroon had enough of its own troubles. We needed to believe that there was somewhere better out there. The glorious America, the idea of America gave us hope. Only when I arrived here did I learn there was something called racism. Only then did I learn of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. Funny though, I knew a great deal about Woodrow Wilson and the League of Nations. 
but I never heard about the plight of Native Americans. Only after I arrived here did I hear about people being described as homeless, a phenomenon which was all but non-existent in my hometown. During those months of acute homesickness, I forgot all about the shortcomings of my hometown, particularly the overt classism that always bothered me even as a child. I forgot that I left my hometown because the opportunities there were few and reserved for those connected to the powerful. Dreams and their achievement are the center of my novel, Behold the Dreamers. But having dreams and high aspirations was never a part of my culture growing up, largely because of the scarcity of opportunities. Without opportunities, by what means would one's dreams be attained? What we had in Limbe, in the absence of dreams, was a sense of contentment. If you couldn't change your circumstances, you found peace with it and celebrated life for what it is. But contentment, of course, is not an American ideal. Oh, I just want to be a content set no America ever met. <laughs> There's an obsession with happiness in this country. I'm in awe of how desperately people pursue happiness in this country how much decisions are made based on what will make someone happy. Why should, we, but why should we as Americans be content when there's so much to be discontent about? I don't completely disagree with that way of thinking. Would we have iPhones today if we we're content with our cordless phones? Should we be content with a mediocre government? Of course not. This country became what it is today because of men and women who dreamed. While I would never call myself a dreamer, I'll admit that hearing Americans talking about dream, dreaming big and going after dreams and never, never giving up on dreams opened my eyes when I came here to a whole new way of living, one of the many blessings that this country has given me. And yet, fascinated as I was by the dream culture I was living in, I could also see up close the price of high ambitions. I saw the long hours of work involved, the broken families, I read about diseases caused by stress. It made me realize what an unappreciated gift contentment is and how special our lives were in Limbe, even in the absence of modern amenities. As a young child, I lived in villages with my mother, where my mother worked as a community development assistant. The houses in which we lived had no electricity or running water. But I don't remember ever wishing that our lives were different. I would say I had a very happy childhood. We were happy not because we pursued happiness, but because we recognized that happiness is a byproduct of freedom. We were free because we had the basics in life. Our house in Limbe had electricity but no running water, but that was part of the fun, going with my cousins and my friends to fetch water and chatting as we walked back home with our buckets of water on our heads. Even relatives and friends who lived in what Americans would call a hut, their lives were full because there was a great sense of community. People were happy because even though they didn't have much, they had the basics, the weather was beautiful, and we lived by the ocean. When my novel first came out, one of the first reviews of it made a mention of my childhood and said I'd grown up in extreme poverty. And I said, yikes. I wish I hadn't read it in keeping with my principle of not reading reviews. But a couple of my friends read the review and loved it and they said I should read it. And it was a glowing review. But I had a very hard time getting over how my childhood was mischaracterized. 
I have no doubt the reviewer's use of the term extreme poverty came from a positive place. I've met the reviewer, I'm a fan of his, and I knew he was simply trying to illustrate how far I'd come from being a small town African girl to an American novelist. The reviewer was hardly the only American to make such an assumption. But the truth is that I did not know poverty till the day I came to this country. My toughest financial struggles came after I'd finished college, when I was in between jobs like bank teller, dental office receptionist, department store sales associate. At one point, I worked as a door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesperson, which is, was as bad as it sounds. <laughs> um, back in those days, I had this ugly 1989 Honda Civic, which didn't have AC or anything, and I had to buy a, a fan and put on the dashboard, and then I drove with this vacuum cleaner around New Jersey, and then I had to carry up fly, flights of stairs to sell it, and I'll go to people's houses, and then I'll, let me demonstrate to you how wonderful this vacuum cleaner is, and then I'll vacuum their living room, and then they'll say, oh, thank you, I'm not gonna buy it. <laughs> and I was really, it was obviously a very, very, very hard time. Um, what I learned during that period of being very poor, what I learned about American poverty, is that it is a vicious thing. It is dehumanizing, it is undignifying, it is relentless. It flattens you and flips you over, it flattens you and flips you over and flattens you some more on the other side. Poverty wasn't half as shameful in my hometown because we had other forms of wealth. A poor man could walk tall because he had a good wife and healthy children. But the American poverty I encountered had a way of depriving one of the ability of enjoying other forms of wealth. On top of that, one goes around with an awful sense of being a failure because you're living in a country where you're surrounded by riches and proclamations about how if only you could work harder, your life would be better. Well, I stopped selling vacuum cleaners at some point. My life did get better. I got my master's from Columbia with the help of a professor who got a scholarship for me. I got married, I had children. I became an American citizen, I became a novelist, I made my home in New York City, I got invited to speak at Seattle Arts and Lecture. <laughs> <laughs> Though not in that order. <laughs> and it was nowhere as smooth as it sounds. <laughs> this past September was my 20th anniversary of living in the US. 20 years, and I still don't believe I'll ever be able to lay claim to the country the same way as people were born here. I live in a space between, and so does my writing. It is the immigrant's burden to have a body in one place and a heart in another place. An animal can only strut so proudly out of its natural habitat. As immigrants, we speak often of all what we left behind. Even the immigrants I know who left dangerous situations, places they no longer wish to return to, they still carry their countries within them, just like I do. They stand on whatever foundation was laid for them there. Migration, be it immigrating, entering a country, or emigrating, leaving a country, it is all consuming and transforming. There's no separate column to tabulate the losses and the gains. They all mix together, ever present, a shadow at every turn. We lose a sense of total belonging, living in another country, and yet we gain opportunities. 
We're in awe of the wonders of our new country, and yet we long for what only the old country can give us. Away in a distant land, those of us who cannot physically return home to visit do so in our spirits, because our sanities demand it. No matter where we go, we carry our bed places with us, never apart from, never, never apart from all that it gave us and filled in providing for us. We seek its warm air on cold days, imagine its sunshine when clouds cannot be subdued. We see long lost faces in a sea of strangers. We hear a voice and remember a story from a distant evening. A love song breaks our heart, for we remember the ones we once lost and loved, loved and lost in this chase after the wind. Some days we spend hours on YouTube watching video after video, music videos hits from back in the days. We try the old dance moves. We think of some party. Those were the days. That was the most perfect time to be alive. Why did we come here? It's a question we often ask. Did you come here for work, for family, for a better life? What is a better life? That's the question a fellow immigrant recently asked me. He said his life in his country was far better than the life he has in America. Then why did you come here, I asked him. To stay alive, he said. My life was in danger back home. I consider what he said. I came for an education and a chance at career success. He came to stay alive. A friend of mine came after a bitter divorce to heal a broken heart. What were we all seeking in common? Freedom, of course. Freedom, ultimately, is what the American dream promises. Freedom to pursue whatever it is that we want. And for us, a quest for freedom is a quest for home, because home is freedom. When I began writing my novel in 2011, home wasn't at the forefront of my mind. Cameroon was my homeland, but New York City had adopted me and given me the home at long sought. My inspiration for the novel was a great recession, in part because I was unemployed after having lost my job during the financial crisis. And because I was unemployed, I had a lot of time on my hands. I started writing a story about two families, one the family of an immigrant chauffeur and the other the family of a Lehman Brothers executive he works for and how these two families were affected after Lehman Brothers collapsed to usher in the Great Recession. My life had been affected by the financial crisis along with the lives of many people around me. So I wanted to explore how these fictional characters were also affected. But the wonderful thing about writing, or at least my kind of writing, is that you set off writing one, one thing, and by the time you're done, you've written something entirely different. I was certain while I was writing this novel that it was very much about the fall of Lehman Brothers and how it shaped the lives of the story's characters. Even months before the book came out, I still thought that. That is, until I had a meeting at my publisher and somebody said to me, so, Imbolo, what would you say this story is about? And I gave an answer, and everybody in the room said, oh, no, no, that's not what it's about. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll tell you what it's about, because we're your publisher, and we, we know your book. <laughs> So they told me, and after the novel came out, readers and journalists and academics all told me. I was told the book was merciless in its depiction of the American dream. When I went to France, I was congratulated by several journalists for writing a book that warned prospective immigrants that America was no promised land. 
have been told by readers that the story is about family, about marriage, about the American dream, about New York City, about choices, about failures, about lies, about immigration, about home. The assertion that the story is about home is perhaps the one that most took me by surprise because I never set out to write about home and yet characters are always thinking of the home they left behind, the way things were, the dream of homes they hope to someday own and in which they will raise their children. A young man from a wealthy family leaves his home on a quest for true peace. In a scene that takes place just before Lehman Brothers collapses, the executive, Clark Edwards, sits, on the, sits with his chauffeur, Jender Jonga, by the Hudson River to watch the sunset. They talk about home and family and everything in between. Jender says a man can find a home anywhere. Clark reads a mediocre poem about home. The last word in the novel is home, question mark. I've been asked about that. In Bolo, the novel ends home. What does home mean to you? Where is your home these days? Are you finally at home in America? New York City has given me the home I'd long dreamed of finding in America. And in the process, it taught me a lot about home. It has pushed me to learn how to be at home anywhere because my home is a far away place and a nearby place and a place around the corner. Some days it's easy to arrive and settle in. Other days I can barely see its roof so covered in fog. There are stretches of time when I'm surrounded by strangers in the newest of places and yet I'm at home. From one day to the next, the distance between my home and the place where I stand fluctuates. It depends entirely on me how far or near my home is, because home is a choice. In accepting my evolution of the notion of home, I've also accepted that I no longer have the same sense of belonging in my hometown like I used to do when I was growing up. Like the characters in my novel, I recognize that this immigrant life expands and contracts ones in ways in unanticipated ways. The person who returns to Cameroon to visit is a thousand miles removed from the person who left it. Life happened to me. America happened to me. Last year, I went to my hometown for a visit. My cousin and her husband picked me up from the airport, and we were driving back home. I asked my cousin, I said, can you tell me how to get Wi-Fi? And she said, what is Wi-Fi? And I said, come on, it's 2018. You know, this is, Limbe is a small thriving town. How can you not have Wi-Fi? And she said, we don't have it, never heard of it, sorry. I said, okay, I let it go. So a few minutes later, she said to me, wait, are you talking about connecting on a network to get the internet? I said, yeah. She said, oh, you're so silly. It's not called Wi-Fi, it's called Wi-Fi. So she starts laughing at me, laughing really hard. And later she tells everybody, oh, in Bola's saying Wi-Fi instead of Wi-Fi. What is Wi-Fi? It's Wi-Fi. Learn how to say it right. <laughs> so only later did I realize that Wi-Fi is a French word for Wi-Fi. And with my country being mostly French-speaking, the French words move around. And so if you're ever in France, please make sure to say, excusez-moi, je vous jouer le Wi-Fi, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> But on that day, I didn't know my cousin and I were speaking two different languages. I was simply reminded of how much I no longer belonged in my own hometown the way I used to. I was different. I was not like them anymore. 
It took me back to when I first came to America, my friends here would laugh at me the way I pronounced certain words, and then they'll spend so many minutes teaching me how to say it the right way. And I'll say, good luck with that, this accent is not going anywhere. <laughs> People love to talk about assimilation, as if it's something you can go to a store and buy. Hey, why don't you put your old ways in the trash and go to CVS and buy some new American ways? The politician Bobby Jinder supposedly referred to immigration without assimilation as an invasion. This view, of course, comes from the notion that the marginalized have to adopt the ways of the dominant culture. Immigrants have to adopt the ways of native bonds. African-Americans should act less black. Gays should behave a little straight. The message is, try to be more like us because we are the norm. Come further into our world, otherwise you might end up at a disadvantage. Recently, I was listening to Michelle Obama's memoir, where she talks about her time at Princeton, about how most of her friends were other black students. She talked about this idea that black students on college campuses should stick together. They shouldn't stick together. They should make more of an effort to be part of the main campus culture. And she asks, why? Why should the burden of assimilation be on us? And I said, amen to that. Why should we be the ones making most of the effort? Why can native bonds make more of an effort to come further into our world? I'm not talking about going to Thai or Indian restaurant or doing yoga, even though it's really good to be flexible. <laughs> I'm talking about going into the temples of foreigners, attending their festivals, learning how to say hello in their language. Some of us pat ourselves on the back because we went on vacation to Vietnam and visited a village we traveled to Kenya and went, went into the slums. But what about doing similar things in our own hometown, in our own towns? But in Bolo, you might say, it makes no sense for us to be venture into your world. You guys are the ones who came into our own country. Well, in that case, why don't we all adopt the customs of Native Americans? If I'm saying all this, it's not because I've mastered the art of opening myself to other cultures very different from mine. I struggle very much still. I realize what a long way I still have to go, and I recognize that if I were to cling less to my identities, it would be so much easier for me. This all came into focus for me two years ago when I was speaking in the lovely town of Savannah, Georgia. Because I was speaking there in February and the weather was warm, two of my very close friends from college decided to come and spend the weekend with me there. So after my talk, which was on a Saturday, my friends and I went out to dinner, and then we had a whole night to fill up with fun stuff. And my friends decided, of all things, that they wanted to go see a burlesque show. <laughs> First of all, I barely even knew what that was. It just didn't sound like the kind of thing I do. The certain kind of things that I'm not into, and a burlesque show sounds like one of them. But my friends couldn't care less about my liking. They wanted to see burlesque dancers, and seeing they traveled to be with me, I grudgingly went to see the show. And I said, huh, this is interesting. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, and I looked forward to calling my husband the next day and say, guess who went to see a burlesque show? <laughs> so we left the burlesque show. One friend went to the hotel, and my other friend said, it's only midnight, let's do something else. I hadn't seen this friend in 10 years. I wanted to spend one-on-one -on -one time with him, so I said, okay. What did he suggest? 
Let's go see a drag show at a gay club. Which sounded far more wholesome than a burlesque show. <laughs> but I told my friend I was going to pass because, again, it's not my thing. He begged and he begged. My friend is a gay man, and at that time he was going through a hard time trying to mend a broken heart. I could see in his eyes how badly he wanted to step away from his struggles and enjoy the drag show. So grudgingly, I went into the basement nightclub. I was so nervous. I was so afraid. I could barely even sit. I stood in a corner with my arms folded. And there were so many men in that place. Am I safe? I said to myself. My friend was somewhere flirting. The drag queen started coming out, singing and dancing. Wow, I thought, look at their dresses. That's a lot of hair. I wish I could do my makeup that good. <laughs> this is so much fun. Before I knew it, I forgot I was in a gay bar. I was in awe of this drag culture. I wanted to know everything about it. So why was I afraid to go in in the first place? I suppose I could claim that it's because I don't like loud music, which is true. I could say it's because I don't drink alcohol and I don't care for bars, and that is true also. But the thing is that if someone has said to me, in Bolo, there's a group of Africans there having a loud dance party. Come with us. There'll be lots of alcohol. I would have gone in a second. I wouldn't have cared about how loud the music was because they were Africans. I still wouldn't have drank the alcohol, but I wouldn't have stood in the corner wondering if I was safe. The reason I was afraid of entering a burlesque club or going to see a drag show was because I did not know what goes on in places like that, and I was afraid of taking the risk and finding out. People say the problem with America is racism and classism and sexism and a host of other isms. But what we don't talk about enough is that one of the root causes of all these isms is the shortage of curiosity. We are just not curious enough right now. We are not curious enough about each other to do the hard work of finding out who they are. We are not curious enough to ask questions, to question the things we've heard, the stories we've been told. We prefer to cling to our identities and say, I'm an X, so I don't do Y. We stick to our kind because it's safe. But how far will that take us? Look at what it's doing to us, how afraid it's making us, how much it's depriving us of life-transforming experiences. In the absence of curiosity, what are we left with? Fear and a determination to destroy that which we are afraid of. Lock them up, we say to people who don't know. Take away their rights to choose. Ostracize them for being gay. Shame them for being overweight. Throw them in immigration detention. Ridicule them for being poor. Punish them for all the ways they, they fail to be normal like the rest of us. We have become what a friend of mine calls a punishmentalist society because we don't take the time to hear a story so that we can show mercy. And what are we without mercy, except animals ripping each other apart? Curiosity, though, should not be confused with useless inquiries, by which I mean asking questions of the other person just because you want to know. A couple of months ago, I was moderating a panel of immigrants in Kitsap County, and an audience member asked the panelist, what is your least favorite question to be asked by an American? The panel was in agreement on the question they most dislike. Where are you from? On the surface, it's such a simple question. 
tell me what country you're from. And yet, what those panelists hear, what I often hear is, you are not from here. You're not one of us. Identify yourself, who are you? And that happened to me just this past week. I was walking down the street in Manhattan and a man comes up to me, I'm standing on the street corner, and he says, oh, the weather looks really nice today. And I said, yes. The moment I opened my mouth, the topic changed from the weather to where are you from? And where it turns out he wanted more than talk about the weather, I wanted to know, you know, whether I was single or married. And when I told him that somebody put a ring on it, he said, have a nice day. <laughs> um, but the question of where are you from is just, it's, um, I find it very deflating. And so did these immigrants on this panel. But that question, in the proper context, in a context where the questioner recognizes that they're talking to another human, that the human is more than an immigrant. It is a human who has a lot more to share besides the story of why they left their country. It is a wonderful question. It is a conversation many of us love to have. I love to talk about the beautiful country that is Cameroon. But being an immigrant so often strips you of that, the right to be recognized as more than a curiosity in another man's country. Years ago, while I was working in a nonprofit in New York, one of my coworkers said to me, I've lived my whole life in my neighborhood. I was born here, I went to school here, I got married here, I'm going to die here, I don't want to ever leave it. I was astounded. After many years of being a foreigner and being surrounded by foreigners in my private life, I had forgotten that there are people who have never been foreigners, who never left in search of more. What is it like? to have such a life, to have never left home. I asked myself that question again during my visit last year home, as I was looking at my cousins and my friends. Imagine such a thing, I said to myself. Imagine what it is like to never have had to struggle to be at home in another man's homeland. But how often do we spend time imagining the lives of others? The word empathy is a big one these days. The empathy can only truly do its job when identities step aside so that all what remains is just a human being, a human being a human. When my novel was published in 2016, Washington Post in their review called it the one novel Donald Trump should read. So I was asked often, Imbolo, do you agree with that title? Why should Mr. Trump read your novel? It was a rather tough question for me to answer. Does he read novels? <laughs> Does he read any kind of books? I don't know the guy. I really don't know whether he reads books. <laughs> what I'll say about Mr. Trump is that his rhetoric has pushed me to look at myself, to consider my own identities. The week after he was reported to have insulted African countries, calling them a explicit dirty word, uh, supposedly, the week after that happened, I received a request from a national radio program to come on air to discuss if I, as an African immigrant, thought the president was racist. I thought about the invitation, I pondered it. Ultimately, I asked my publicist to, to thank the program on my behalf and declined the invitation. Not long after that, I was asked by a white person if I thought Mr. Trump was a racist. My response was along the lines of, Please don't ask me such a question again. It's not that I don't believe we should have a conversation about the topic. We need to hold our leaders accountable 
And if they don't champion the, our shared values, we should condemn their words and actions. I am the native of a country where we've had the same dictator for 36 years. And even as a child, I was deeply aware of what little freedom of speech we had. When I came to America and saw people could stand on the street and criticize the president, I was in awe. So I do not take my right to speak out lightly. What concerns me about having conversations regarding Mr. Trump's divisiveness is that in spending so much time talking about him, we spend too little time talking about our own shortcomings, the ways in which our own identities are affecting how we treat other humans. What do we identify with? How does our identity shape our principles? What notions do we perpetuate in the way we live, the choices we make? So Mr. Trump is racist, but what about our own bigotry? So he's sexist and prejudiced against immigrants and the disabled, but what about our own prejudices? Are we all so blameless? Are there not many among us who are benefiting from the very racist system that the likes of him are protecting? Why not talk about that? Why not talk about our own complicity in upholding systems where all people are not treated equally? The world is not going to get better if only other people stop doing this and start doing that. Things are not going to get better if others start behaving more like us. How did we get to this moment in America? Because some people looked at others and said, it's their fault. They're messing up our country. Let's elect somebody who is going to fix the problems that they're causing. Because we are blameless. But are we truly blameless? I know I'm not. And I'm convinced that change is only going to come when we all start considering the ways in which we are contributing to the brokenness of this country. It won't be a pretty process. Being brutally honest with ourselves is not a fun thing to do. But America needs it, and this country is so worth fighting for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. So, Mbolo, we're so excited to have you here. And, you know, I don't know about all of you. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have had an opportunity to read Behold the Dreamers yet? Oh, wow. Look <laughs> at that. You. Thank you. And I, I can tell just by your response in listening to her speak, there's some books right there that the rest of you will be picking up a copy on the way out, yes? <laughs> Thank you. You know, just listening to you speak and having read the book, so much of your compassion, your humor, your activism, your feminism, all of that is really represented so well in Behold the Dreamers and in the complex characters that you've portrayed. Uh, I, we have some questions that have come in that we're going to get to. If you have questions that are coming up, make sure to write them on a card and give them to one of the ushers that are walking down, or you can continue to use the app Slido and we'll see the questions that way. And as you're continuing to send your questions to us, we're just gonna go ahead and start some of the conversation. You know, I know that you mentioned that you started writing the book in 2011, is mm -hmm. that correct? Mm -hmm. That's correct. And as you were 
talking about some of the experiences in your life, having come over from Cameroon, having experienced the immigration process here, how much of how much of the how much of the things in your life do you feel really started the catalyst for this story? What was the first thing? Um, I think for me it was the um, the um, what's the word? Um, question in America, you know, mm -hmm. that sense of um, feeling as if America was not what I thought it would be and thinking maybe I'm, I'm better off going back home. Um, I think that's, that happened at my lowest moments in the country after I finished college, like, like I said, when I was selling vacuum cleaners from door to door, and I said, did I really come here for this? Um, is this worthwhile? You know. Like, you give up so much to come to this country. Mm -hmm. You know, you give up your home, your friends, your, you know, being, being, being like everybody else in your country, you know, not worrying about being different, having an accent and all of that. And then you come here and you look at your life and you think, did I give up everything for this? And I think that, is, that was like a big moment for me. Um, and also seeing a lot of my friends questioning that, like, is America really worthwhile? Um, and which is something that the characters in my novel, you know, question also, like, is America worthwhile? Um, and the issue of poverty, because like I said, mm -hmm. I, just the poverty I saw in America was just so brutal, you know, so right. brutal and so, um, so relentless. And it's, um, and seeing how hard it is to get out of it also, because people say, oh, look at you, you worked hard and now you're a best-selling novelist, but, you know, it. There's such a price to pay, you know. There's such a price to pay, and you wonder, do I want to pay this price? That's, I want to touch upon a couple of things that you just brought up, because, you know, as immigrants, there is, there's a fine line that you're consistently straddling, right. right? You have one foot in one home, one foot in another, and I know you talked a lot about defining home, and you see that in the characters and Behold the Dreamers, specifically with the Jonga family. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the question that they're battling. We're coming here, we have one dream in mind, this mm -hmm. idea of the American dream, and it shifts. What, I know you just talked about poverty, and I'd love to talk about that in a moment. What else do you think shifts in terms of an ideal of the American dream, and what happens when you're really here? Well, so the characters in my novel, they also you know, have to do with legal status. So, so that is compounded, you know. And people say to me when they when I you know do events around the country, they say, "Oh, in Bolo, I had no idea how hard it is to not have papers." <laughs> like you have no idea. It is very very difficult, you know, to not have papers. And to like the character of Jender Jonga, who not only does not have papers, but he is in danger of being deported. Um, it is it is very hard. So I think a lot of people don't realize how hard it is to get papers until they get here. You know, you think you go to America and you file papers and then you become a citizen. But the process is very, very long and very challenging and you need a really good lawyer. Like the characters in my novel, they don't have a good lawyer. So the, you know, the, the, the documentation you know, situation is very also, also very hard. Um, How was the uh, immigration process for you? Was it, was no, it also no, as difficult? Yeah, mine wasn't, I didn't, I didn't come to asylum. I mm -hmm. had relatives who sponsored me, so it was nothing like this. And I'm a citizen now. Right. Um, so, um, so yes. Yeah, so while I had my challenges, at least you know, like you know, I got my, I had a green card at a certain point. Um, but the characters in my novel, um, 
they also, you know, they're black, they don't have papers, they, you know, the poor gender is not very educated, and it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of hurdles to, to climb, you know, to become, to get to that, to that mountain top of achieving the American dream. And that's something that um, gender realizes that, you know, this is, this is a lot harder than I thought it would be. So that's the big thing, right? When once you're here, it is, it is much more of a difficult process. Yeah. You know, one thing that I, I wanted to take the opportunity to do, I'd love to keep talking about the book, but also I just want to talk a little bit about you and your process as a writer mm -hmm. and in developing this book. But you wrote the book, it came out, it was published in 2016, and this was your debut novel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in 2017, she was already on Oprah's book club and was given the Penn Faulkner Award, which is an award that is specifically for fiction writers. It's for who is defined as the best novelist, and it is considered one of the most highly regarded awards because it's, very, it's all peer considered. And that award is given specifically to American citizens. So just three years after you got your citizenship, mm. she received this award, which is pretty amazing. Mm. And people are probably like, wow, you have this, no this novel came out and you wrote it in just three years, but how long have you been writing? When did you first start writing? Yeah, well, I it took me five years to, learn to write it. And it took me maybe 14 years to learn how to write. So people say, oh, you didn't, like, you didn't take a writing class and you're such a great writing. That is because I spent years learning how to write by myself. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. I mean, my early writing is atrocious. I mean, it's, I wouldn't let anybody see it. <laughs> uh, but I just had to do it over and over. And um, I mean, I think even as a child, I always enjoyed writing, but I didn't think that writing is something people do as a career. You know, nobody in my town said, oh, I want to be a writer. It just didn't exist. You know, like even now, people's, people back at home, they say, what do you mean you're a writer? What is that? <laughs> because it's just you know, not something that people do where I come from. So I never considered that it was an option for me until you know, I, one day when I was um, after college, I read Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. And I loved it so much, and I started writing as a hobby. And I was thinking, well, I will, um, I will write as a hobby, and then I'll you know, go to graduate school and get a PhD and become a college professor and have a respect, you know, respectable job, because that is much better than being a writer. And that <laughs> it didn't, didn't work out for me. That dream fell apart. I never got a PhD. I just ended up being a writer. But it seems to work out really well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have some questions about your writing from the audience, and so here's one. You've shared that you taught yourself to write also by reading um, some um, of the Oprah Book Club novels. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have any particularly favorite ones off of the Oprah book list? Yeah, well, Song of Solomon was an Oprah book club also. Okay. Um, I definitely loved Franzen's, Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections, um, which came out many years ago. Um, I loved Barbara Kinsova's The Poisonwood Bible. Um, so back in those days, I just read, I also wasn't very exposed to American literature. So Oprah's Book Club was my first experience of like reading American novelists because I grew up just mostly reading African writers and a lot of the British writers. So when I discovered Toni Morrison, I thought, oh my God, Americans know how to write, you know. <laughs> let, me, let me read more of their work. So what are the steps that you take when you're writing? So the... This book is, I think it's a 382-page novel. That's a lot of writing. What, how does that happen? When, 
Are you making an outline? Do you start with one idea? Do you just let it go? We'd love to hear about your process. No, I just write until, until, until it's done. I don't, there's no, <laughs> there's no, pro <laughs> I just write and rewrite and rewrite. There's, I have no process whatsoever. That's probably not a good answer you want to hear, but I have no process. I, I had an inspiration, and I'll tell you, um, back when I was unemployed, I went for a walk one day, walking down the street, and I saw these chauffeurs on the corner of the street, and I thought, wow, oh my God, chauffeurs, who has chauffeurs? You know, I don't know anybody who has a chauffeur, I don't know anybody who works as a chauffeur, but the idea of, of having a chauffeur or working as a chauffeur, I thought it was very interesting. So I went home, and, and I said to my husband, who has a chauffeur? And he said, the Wall Street guys. I said, oh, so I'm gonna write about a story about a Wall Street guy who has a chauffeur, and, and because the chauffeurs I saw, they looked like Africans, I thought the chauffeur's gonna be an African immigrant. And, and I was thinking, so Lehman Brothers just happened, and I thought, oh, I'm going to write a story about a Wall Street guy and his chauffeur, and what if the Wall Street guy is a Lehman Brothers executive? Mm -hmm. So that's how the whole thing came together, and then I did a Google search of a chauffeur's job description, and I, <laughs> and I found that you pick the wife, take her to her opera, you take the children to soccer game, whatever, that kind of stuff, and from then it was, Mostly just being very nosy, you know, <laughs> as far as learning about people's lives because I've never been a chauffeur. I don't know um, mm -hmm. the 1%. I don't, I don't have any friend with the 1%er. So I had to, um, to write about these people that I knew so little about the world. Whenever I met somebody from that world, you know, I'd say, oh, what did you, where did you go for vacation? Oh, I went to St. Bart's. And I said, oh, that's where the vacation, you know. <laughs> oh. Or, you know, like, uh, if I go to their houses, I'll notice, like, what things look like and the way they talk, you know. So all of it was just, like, making files in my head of this world. Um, and um, and they, for the African immigrants, it was easy because, you know, they're from mm -hmm. my town. They lived in Harlem like I used to. But I had to be very, very cautious about writing about um, the wealthy white family, which was the hardest part about writing this novel because... Um, it was very obvious that I did not love them the same way I loved the African mm. immigrants. It was, I, I was very judgmental towards them, and you could tell the book was rejected over and over because people are like, it's so clear that you don't like these people. Why do you, why you care to tell their story? And my defense was, why should I like them? They're rich white people. Do they have any problems? You know, they have, their, life, their life is good. And I didn't even realize that, you know, I was making the worst mistake by judging them. Right. Instead of just telling their story. So the, I had to go through this process of leaving my judgment at the door. To say that there's no way, no way I can write a book I wrote if I kept on judging them. So that's um, a great lesson that all, all of the writers in the room can take, is you have to leave your judgment yes. at, the at the door. You have to love your characters. And you've done such a great job with well, those characters. You don't characters. have to love them. You just have to tell their story. You, you just know? have to tell their yeah, story. All right, that's I mean, fair. <laughs> You I mean, don't have to love them. I don't, yeah, I, don't, I don't think I love them so much, I, but I think that <laughs> I, I, I care, I wish them well, you know? Like, I want to... <laughs> I, 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 I mean, it, people ask me all the time, oh, Imbolo, how similar are you to Jende Jonga, who is an immigrant? How similar are you to Nani Jonga? They don't ask me how similar are you to Clark Edwards because they think, what could you possibly have in common with a you know, wealthy Wall Street executive man, white man? But the thing is that after spending five years writing this book, mm -hmm. I see myself in him. Yeah. 
And after spending so much time, the wife, Cindy Edwards, was the hardest character to write because she's not easy to like. Yeah. And so she made me a better writer because when you write somebody who is so not easy to like, you really have to go really deep to like see, you know, the humanity. And if you don't see it, then you cannot write it. And you've done such a beautiful job of making all of those characters very, very well-rounded. You know, and I just have to point out, especially for the Seattle audience, there's a really rare experience that you can have. You can read this novel and experience that world. And also right now at Bukit Theater, there is a world premiere production that opens tomorrow of Behold the Dreamers. And so you can see that whole world interpreted um, through My Myra Platt, the director and the playwright there. And I have to ask you, as an artist, you spend five years creating this whole world. And this isn't actually the first time it's been adapted. It was actually adapted into an opera first. Is that correct? In Poland. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it. I just heard it was good. It was a Poli Polish opera, Behold the Dream. <laughs> But it got, so you didn't get to see it there, but it's been adapted once. So is tomorrow the first time that you're going to get to see a world that you created adapted by somebody else? Yes, but I think, because people say, how are you going to feel seeing your book on stage? You know, how you, I think I don't have any expectation because I don't claim this story as my story. You know, I wrote the book, but it's not my story because... People gave me this story, you know. Mm -hmm. this, this story was inspired by so many people who I met and, and things they told me and, and what I saw. And it was all other people's lives that I kind of put together to write this story. So in a way, um, as long as they play or whatever, I mean, it's also been an option for a movie. As long as whatever they do there is, is true to, to the people whose story represents, I'm fine with it. It doesn't have to, it's not about me. I don't know, like I've kind of separated myself that this is not my story. This is the story that I was given to tell. It's a story to share. And actually on story, just a question about that, you know, our relationship to the stories that we tell constantly shift. Mm -hmm. So... Where are you in your relationship to Behold the Dreamers now versus when you started? Yeah, I, huh, I think because the story has been so interpreted and analyzed and everybody has all these symbolisms that I never saw intended, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I have no, it's not my story anymore, that's what I mean. I mean, people have come to me and said things like, this is what this means, right? Or this is what you're trying to do here, right? No, I never thought about that. But because I, um, like I give an example, there's a character in the novel, it's a very minor character. Her name is Anna, and she's, um, she's a housekeeper to the Edwards family, the wealthy family. And the whole time I'm writing this novel, you know, I could hear Anna's voice very clearly. She has a foreign accent, but I never had a sense of what she looked like. And so I, um, so I was telling a friend of mine, I said, oh, you know, I, I think I finally figured out, you know, what Anna is. I think Anna is like, you know, Eastern European. And my friend said, what are you talking about? She's Filipino. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what can I say? Okay, she's Filipino, you know, <laughs> you know, but I don't mean. Oh my. So I love all. We're, I love that we're getting such a great sense of how you created all of these characters and be all the dreamers. Now you have a, another project coming up that you've been working on. Is that right? Can you yes. tell us a bit about it? Yeah. So it is as far from be all the dreamers as possible. It is way way darker. Um, uh, it is. Um, I'm, I'm not quite done with it, but I'm more comfortable talking about it now. It is about. Um, uh, 
when it, what happens when a small African village decides to fight about against an American coal company that is polluting the land? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 ruthless story. I mean it's it broken me to pieces writing it. It's it's been a very, very, very difficult novel to write, but I'm almost done. Well, so you, yeah. So we'll be looking forward to, to watching out for that. I want to touch upon some of the questions because we have some great questions that were delivered by the audience. Uh, we have here, you know, I think, and this is coming from all of the wonderful words that you just shared with us. How would you encourage interconnection and interdependence between people who are different rather than an ongoing obsession with individuality and success that... Uh, and I think you started speaking to that a little bit by talking about curiosity mm -hmm. and, the ne and the necessity of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Are there other ways in which you think we can work better? Right. Well, I think because I have struggled myself and I've seen, like I told the story about like being afraid to go into a gay bar, being afraid to go into a, a burlesque show. And it's always justifying, like, you know, this makes sense, right? But not realizing that, you know, I could be more open to the world. And behold, the dream has only happened because I was open to the world. I think that, you know, and to, because I was in a new country and I had to be open you know, to get where, where I wanted to get to. But I have learned that I couldn't have written this story if I wasn't curious about people. Mm -hmm. um, from the moment I came to America, I, when I came to college, I, I wanted to, my friend, the gay guy I mentioned, that was one of my first friends when I, when I came to America. And, I was curious about him. I was curious about other, you know, religions. I went to, the church I went to was mostly Korean-American church. Um, at one point, I met, um, I went somewhere and I met this guy. He was from West Virginia. And I was like, wow, West Virginia. And he, you know, this, I hope this doesn't sound wrong, but he, like, he had, you know, he had this long beard and he, and he, um, and I just had this fantasy that I'll marry him one day and I'll move to West Virginia and I'll like live in West Virginia and become a hippie um, because I was just very curious about that world. So I think that that, that fascination with America because mm -hmm. there was so much to learn, so much to see, so many different kinds of people, like it always created in me a hunger to know more. Right. It doesn't mean that I wasn't afraid because obviously the things that I haven't done yet, you know, like I, I live in New York City, but I still had never gone to a ballet show. But I think I'm always trying to push myself to say, I want to know more about these people. Um, and that is what happened with writing Behold the Dreamers because when I started writing the novel, the, the hard part was that I wasn't curious enough about the life of a Wall Street executive mm -hmm. because it was like, oh, I know what they like, you know, they have money, they work on Wall Street, you know, like I have my stereotype that I think of the man I stuck to eat. I didn't wake up in the morning and say, oh my God, I want to be empathetic to a rich guy, you know. It wasn't like that. But because the story demanded right. that I be empathetic, you know, people say to me, oh, this novel is so empathetic, but it wasn't natural, you know, it wasn't easy. It was, it was searching myself and seeing that I have my own judgment, I have my own bigotry, you know, mm -hmm. and that unless I work on that, I can never write the story. That self-examination of self is so important and we need to do it, all of us need yeah. to do that in order to come together. Yeah. We have time for just a, a, one other question. You know, I, I wanted to ask you, and, and th this has been coming through in, in a number of the questions, it seems that we have a lot of inspired writers in the room um, what would your advice be 
to writers in the room and specifically to um, some of the female writers in the room in terms of how to get out there and write, how to get published? Mm -hmm. uh, well, the writing is different from the publishing, right? Because you could write all you want and you <laughs> might not care about being published. Um, the writing part is, you know, it's to just do it over and over. I mean, I, I spent 14 years learning how to write. And maybe because I wasn't so stuck on being published, that really helped me. I was writing for myself in the beginning. You know, I discovered that, oh my God, I can write and I'm gonna just do it because I love it and I enjoy it. The publishing thing came years later, years later after I lost my job. Um, and so I didn't have that pressure of being published like other people do. I didn't go to MFA program, I didn't do anything. So how did it happen? Because I, you got a, a million dollar deal with Random House, right? I got, yes, it was a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, I, so that happened because there's agents, right? <laughs> so I didn't sell my book, I have an agent. So you have to get but, an agent, so how do we get the about, agent? Right, but I should talk about a rejection because people, you know, <laughs> people don't talk about the fact that I was rejected one million times by every agent in the country, you know, like everybody rejected me, not because they didn't like me, but because they could see that I had potential and I hadn't realized my potential. And so it was always like, go back and do it again. And I think a lot of, writers are so desperate to be published. They want to just put anything out there. Right. And I did not have that. I wanted to be an excellent writer first. So I took my time to write, to learn how to write. And then when, you know, when I kept on getting rejected, I realized that I really, really had to, have to learn how to write. And until my work was really um, excellent, and then I got, um, I got an agent. And then, you know, she sold a book in four days, which is why it went for a lot in of In four money. days? Yeah. She sold the book in four days. Uh, but that is because I, at that point, I had learned that, you know, publishing is not, you know, the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is to be an excellent writer. Can you say that again? Publishing is not the most important thing. Yeah. What is? To be an excellent writer. To, to be an excellent writer. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful note and some great advice uh, to give to all of the young writers in the room. Um, I think we should all just take a moment to give Mbulumboye a huge round of applause and thank her for her time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. She's going to be, she will be at the opening night of Behold the Dreamers at, at Book It Theater tomorrow. And we're going to be looking out for your next book. And um, thank you all so much for your wonderful, wonderful questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>